As I read aloud, if you'd follow along with me. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he, come, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but anyone, if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God give us understanding in his word as we preach and give explanation the sense to God's word today. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? After prayer, we'll have a song from our choir and then the preaching of God's word today. We thank you, Father, as we listen to your word today and the strong warning and condemnation, it shakes us. So help us understand your truth today. Your judgment is promised and is sure. And yet we can stand before each other today and are alive because your grace is still available. And we thank you for that grace. We thank you for allowing us to be here today we thank you for allowing us to experience the grace of waking up another day, another day that we can hear your word and be reminded of your truth and be directed by your word and by your Holy Spirit to obedience, to accept you, to trust you, to live according to you by your power and your grace. We pray for this congregation. We pray for each of us, Lord, for our spiritual well-being, that we would be alive and alert and following you. 
We pray for our physical state, Lord, for those who are suffering. We think of Sister Brenda Adams as she combats the sickness of cancer. We pray that your grace might be upon her, that your power to encourage her and to lift her up spiritually even while she's suffering physically. We pray for your healing on her, Lord. She might once again be in this place to worship you. We pray for her husband as well, Lord. You would challenge and move in his heart and draw him to yourself. Lord, we've come to know of others who once were here that just have health issues. We think of Pastor Cassell Grice as he is struggling now with some type of ailment. We don't know what it is, but we know this Tuesday he will go in for examination and perhaps some type of procedure. We pray for him now. We pray your grace on him. We pray your healing on him and his family and his daughter, his wife and his daughters, Lord. Um, we pray for the family of Joe Hurd, who also was once part of us here and heard that he has now gone to be with you. We pray your grace upon that family as they grieve, the Hurd family, the Barber family, that you would be with them, watch over them, provide comfort to them. We still think much of them, and we thank you for their service here, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, just continue to work in their lives. Lord, we, um, we think of others who are sick. We have different types of ailments. Lord, we pray for, um, for Maya, little one, just the ailment that she has as she suffers at home, that you might just heal her body. We think of Alex and Avea. They're at home today because they're not feeling well. We pray your healing on them. We pray for others who are suffering in, in different types of ways that you might be with and bless. Watch over your people, Lord. Physical ailments, challenges um, that, that some are dealing with, Lord, that you would give grace. You would call each of us to, to come and to serve you. Now we just thank you for this gathering today and pray, Lord, that you just uh, give us understanding from your word, challenge and encouragement from your word, rebuke and warning from your word as well. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
hear that song, it's a blessing because it's true. We're coming up this year on 30 years of service here at Sweet Communion. And my mind goes back to hearing that song over 30 years ago. In fact, in our going to Milwaukee Rescue Mission and having chapel service with them on the third Saturday, one particular month, I met a young man. His name was Tyrone Davis. Remember him well. And he used to come to service at Berean Baptist. And he used to, he joined the church and he used to sing in the choir and they sang that song. And he would sing with such joy that song. And it just brings great memory to know how God has ministered to his people over the years <laughs> and still is doing it. Praise God for that. Choir, y'all go on. Y'all continue on. Praise God. It's good hearing, hearing that's good singing. Praise God for that. Matthew 23, today we look at, and we see a strong worded warning and judgment. There's seven woes that are listed in this chapter. And that number does catch our attention. The Bible uses numbers for symbolism and different things. And I think seven is the number of completion. Six days God created the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day he rested. And so he completed his work. We see in Revelation the repetition of sevens. Now don't get me wrong. Don't. Don't go to Las Vegas and take the number seven and say, Pastor, say this is a lucky number. But there's symbolism there, and I think the symbolism in Revelation is that God is unveiling his judgment in sevens, and his judgment is going to be complete. I think this is a picture, I don't want to emphasize too much, the seven, but the woes are there, and we'll talk about that. But before we get to those woes, he tells, notice who this is addressed to. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. He wants them to hear. So there is something here for everybody, including today. There's something in this message for us today. He starts off with a very strong message saying, look, Listen to the scribes and the Pharisees because they sit in the seat of authority and they tell you many things that are right, but they don't do. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. That in itself is an indictment by the Lord Jesus. Parents, if God calls us to an account and tells our children to do what we say, but not what we do, it's an indictment against us. It's saying at one, 
on one hand to the child, you know to do right, even if you haven't had an example, you're accountable. And the same at the same time to the parent, you have been a terrible parent if you only say what is right and don't model for your children to see. That's what he's saying to the scribes and to the Pharisees. He says, in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they have authority. He says, so do what they say, but not what they do. Why? He says, because they are hypocrites. One of the strongest and the the deepest theme in this whole chapter is that word right there, hypocrite. What does it mean? It means a stage actor, someone who pretends to be something that he or she is not. They're pretending, but they're fake, they're phony. One whose actions belay their stated beliefs. Their actions misrepresent what they say they believe. They say, but they do not do. They know, but they do not acknowledge. They preach, but they do not practice. The illustration in this entire chapter is those spiritual leaders of this nation of Israel whom God has presented his son to, the truth, the one sent from God, sent from heaven with God's authority, the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, and they have rejected him. Even though they have seen all the evidence with their very eyes, And they have talked personally with him to ask questions. And when they had the opportunity to ask questions, they only do it to ridicule. They have rejected the Savior. This is the theme that has been introduced all the way. You you remember in chapter 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, humble and meek, He's not coming in like, like, you know, he's some proud and pompous boss of all, even though he is. He's coming humbly to them. And there's a group of people who say, Hosanna. Hosanna, they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he comes into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, he becomes to not only, he begins to not only declare God's word, but to practice and live it out in God's authority. And they hate him for it. They question him, who gave you the right to do this? And he answers their questions and he presents this to them. They have utterly rejected the one sent by God. You heard the parables that he taught. He taught the parable about the tenants. You remember that. The owner built a vineyard and, and he uh, uh, had his workers dress it and prepare it. And when it gave grapes, he came to get the fruit of that harvest. And they rejected all the messengers. They killed the messengers. He, he 
At, at, at one point, at the final point, he said, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. They killed his son. And Jesus, in that parable, asked, what do you think the owner's going to do? And they gave the answer. He's going to destroy those wicked tenants, and he's going to take the fruit that belongs to him. He gave another parable um, about the wedding feast that the king, his son, was getting married, and he sent out all the invitations, and they ignored the invitations, even killed the messengers. And he uninvited them. <laughs> Facebook reference, right? He, he uninvited them and then invited new guests. So we see Jesus' language all the way up to this point, and now he pronounces a great judgment on all those who reject him. So he says, them, he says to them, they are hypocrites. In verse 5, they do their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor, verse 6. They love greetings, salutations. They, they love ceremony. They love names and titles of honor. He uses the word rabbi and father and teacher and instructor. They, they love names that places great honor on them. We have the same thing going on in our day. People who want to be seen as experts. It's amazing with the internet, everybody has a voice now. I was trying to get a following and a voice. These individuals, Jesus says, they, 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 they want this honor, but they have wholeheartedly rejected the truth. In contrast, Jesus says his followers ought not to be like that. And I think the key word is in verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, verse 12, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then he pronounces these seven woes. A woe is just like it sounds. It's a word of caution. It's a word of warning. It's a word of judgment. It's a word of condemnation. Jesus condemns all those who reject him. I said that's a word for us today as well. We sit in our seats on Sunday where we have available to us the Word of God. There's a great warning for us who hear God's Word regularly. Now, there's some people who don't get to hear God's Word and have it explained in detail as we do. We bear a burden for that. We live in a culture where we go to the best churches, we get the best education, we, we reject some churches and go to others because they're more to our liking. As a culture, 
The word of God is available, especially to us in America. It is available to us, and we're responsible for responding to it. But instead, what we do is we just criticize it, we critique it, we look at it, and we ignore it. Many times it's on the shelf somewhere or doesn't even have a place of honor in our, ho in our houses, let alone in our hearts. God will hold us accountable for whether or not we have accepted and acted on the truth we know about Jesus. We've noticed in this portion of, 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 of Scripture, this whole section, that the skeptic is not free. We, 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 we have this attitude that, you know, if I don't believe something, then I'm excused and I don't have to follow it. We simply say, I don't believe that. So I ain't doing it. You have the right and the freedom to do that. You do not have the right to, to set or change the judgment that God has placed on you when you do that. In other words, you have to answer to God. Every single one of us will have to answer to God, and there will be no excuses that are valid before God. We think sometimes we are nothing like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, and yet we act more like them too often. We have the greater information. We have people sitting in the pews, and they'll critique me and cut me apart, but won't follow the Word of God. No, every error I make, every wrong, wrong word I speak, every gra grammatical error that I might have or use a word wrongly or quote a verse and it be not the verse that I intended. You, you know all those mistakes. If you know that much about the word of God, you are accountable for what it is you follow. Now, I am accountable for presenting God's word, not just presenting, but living it. And if I don't live what it is that I speak, I have great condemnation. James says in chapter 3, don't all of you desire to be teachers because you'll receive the greater judgment. It's amazing to me. I enjoy speaking at Milwaukee Rescue Mission. And you would think when you speak there that you have a crowd that is all ears, right? But I have individuals who come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know what? to show their knowledge of the Word of God. And what I want to say, if you know God's Word, what are you doing here? Why aren't you living it? You are responsible not just for knowing something, but for living it. And so God's Word comes to each and every one of us. There are none of us that can walk out this door and be excused. So he challenges us. So in the first part, he says Jesus is speaking to the crowd and to his disciples. But the first part of the disciples is, don't be like the Pharisees. Do not be hypocrites. Don't go for the show. Fake it till you make it. Don't be that. In the end, you're not fooling God. 
You might fool some people, but that don't matter. It's God who you have to stand before. So that's a strong, strong admonition. Let's look at the seven woes. The first one, verse 13. They are judged because they shut people out of heaven. They shut people out of heaven. Jesus had said earlier in this book, woe to those who hurt the little ones and keep them from coming to him. He is saying to the Pharisees, you shut people out of heaven. In other words, you're teaching something that will take people away from the path of salvation. Either you're doing it straightforward or you're doing it indirectly by not living by what you know to be true. In other words, if someone follows you, are they going to be going in the right direction? If they live as you live, will they be following truth and will they be headed in the right way? He couldn't say that with the Pharisees and it ought not to be said about us today. Second woe, verse 15. They work extremely hard to lead others to hell. This is what Jesus is saying. He said, you travel, you traverse land and sea to make another disciple. In other words, you chase people down. You grabbing people to pull them and to listen to you and to follow you. And what will they get when they follow you? Now I can hardly, I, I, I'm not much on Facebook. Those of you who know me know that. I have a Facebook account, but I never look at it. Because I can't stand the nonsense that comes on it. It's a waste of my time to respond to all the foolishness that I would get if I was to look at Facebook all day. Because everyone wants a voice and wants a following. And my question is, what would I get if I followed you? If I did what you did, will I be going in the right direction? It's just muddied waters. Now, I'm sure there's some good that can be done on Facebook. I don't want to discourage you if you are one of those who are actually doing good and using technology for God's glory. That's a good thing to do. I just don't, I'm sorry, I don't have the patience for that. God bless you if you do. The third woe, verses 16 through 22, they elevate their practices above what God says. Look at verse 16. It says this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. There's an alarm that goes off in my mind every time I hear somebody say, this is true, I swear to God. And I want to, here's the alarm that goes off. I want to say, why are you swearing to God now? What about what you said five minutes ago? What, that wasn't true? You don't swear to God to that? In other words, you are not in the practice of telling the truth when you got to tell me now you're really telling me the truth. 
Now I know you lie all the time. Because you have to make it a big deal that now I'm telling the truth. These individuals begin to, to elevate what they were saying above the word of God. The Bible say this, if you swear by this and this and this. But I'm saying to you, that's in essence what they were doing. It's God's word that is important. It's God's word that we need to know. It's God's word that we need to live out. And you know, when it comes down to it, it's essential. It's often really not that difficult to understand. Yes, we do need to understand it correctly. But the main things that we have a problem with are stuff we should have learned from kindergarten or on. Don't lie. Don't kill. Don't steal. Respect God. Those, those are basic things. Jesus said the golden rule, treat others as you like them to treat you. Basic things. What they've done is they elevate their practice above what God says. Look at the fourth woe, verse 23 through 24. They're concerned about details, but they miss the main point. Verse 23, it says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and deal and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus had a way of using figures of speech to get people's attention. And we certainly understand that. Straining was a filter you would, you would do to, to, to filter out the smaller elements that might defile something. He says they were concerned with filtering out stuff to the, to the point where they could catch a gnat. But then they go and eat and swallow a whole camel. He's saying you are concerned about details, but you missed the whole point. Isn't it true with Jesus? They say, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That, that, that's, against, that's against the law. Well, what was Jesus' response? Dude, I made the Sabbath. You don't understand who I am. I'm trying to show you exactly who I am. They wouldn't even look at his miracle, his work. They were petty. Why? Not because they were so intelligent, they were concerned with the smallest uh, uh, aggression against God's law. It's because they were blind because they had rejected Christ. They were looking at all the ways they could deny that Christ was who he says he was, when at the very moment he was proving right before them who he is, and they were blind and would not and could not see. He says blind over and over again in this passage. Hypocrite over and over 
again. The fifth woe, verse 25 and 26, very much connected to this one. They focus more on outer appearance than true character. They focus more on outer appearance than on true character. Think about our lives. New Year's resolutions come up. We're concerned about what we eat and how we exercise and what that number on the scale says and uh, you know what the hair on my hair head looks like and and what the clothing on my body looks like we're concerned about all those things more than my heart my heart to obey God to do what he says. We can go through great pains to discipline ourselves in the things that are beneficial or what we care about, and little effort is done to actually do what God says. That's what he's challenging. You have to understand, Jesus was looking face to face with men who were educated in the Word of God, educated in, in what we would say the Old Testament, and that's what the Word of God that they had in that day. They were looking at it. They knew it in detail, and they would be, it's like this. They're looking at the Word of God, looking at Jesus, looking at the Word of God, looking at Jesus, and not even making a connection. No connection at all. Even worse than that, they cast judgment on Jesus and they would persecute and kill him. Even though John 1 says he is the word. He is the very uh, essence of God's word. He is God's message to us. We cannot say we're obeying God if we aren't trusting and acknowledging Jesus Christ. We'll get to that as we get to the end of this chapter. Woe number six. Let's read verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. What is he saying? He's saying they are like a casket that you put a dead body in and you wash and clean the outside of it and paint it and decorate it and make it look good and yet inside the person is dead. Not just decayed, dead, but decaying. He says you're dressing it up to make something look beautiful why it's hard for me to stomach so many funerals that we do today is we act as if and you've been there you're hearing this message about this person who you know very well but the message and the person just don't match like what he talking about the same dude I grew up with we're doing that because we do not want to look at death because we don't want to look at reality, it scares us. 
and we dare not look at that person for who they really are because when we come into that picture, we wonder, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. He said they were focusing more on appearance than true character. That was the last one, but this is very much closely uh, uh, aligned with it. Their outer doesn't match their inner. In other words, the outside decoration of this casket doesn't match what's inside of it. It would be like if we took an old piece of meat or fish out of our freezer and put it in a plastic bag and threw it outside and left it there for a few days and then decided to wrap it in a nice box like a Christmas present and put a nice ribbon and a bowl around it. When a person opens that, they look at, oh, this, this nice ribbon and this nice, de what is that that smells? Look at this nice big box with this decoration on. What is that? You see, the outside doesn't match the inside, and Jesus says that's pathetic. And all they do to fix it is dress up the outside. They keep rewrapping the present with a new bowl, with a more decorative package of paper and more better wrapping, different colors maybe this time, more bowls this time. Hey, let's fix this. Let's, let's wrap it up a few more times. They keep doing that. And he says, you're ignoring the inside. You see, we often do that because we know we can't do anything with the inside. There's a dead fish in there. That's what smells. What's the remedy for a dead fish? Well, somebody has to bring it back to life so it doesn't stink anymore. Only God can do that. And since we can't do it, we just keep wrapping the, the package up and making it look good. We even spray some stuff around it. Hopefully that'll kill the, spray, the, the, the smell. We know it won't, but it makes us feel a little better. All of these things, the reason why we're hypocrites, see, the problem with preaching about hypocrites is that in all of our hearts, there's that, 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 that hypocrite in us, that we don't live consistently with what the Word of God is. But the remedy to that is not to ignore it and act like, oh, I'm okay, we good, we good. Not fake it till you make it, it's to acknowledge we need God's work. That's what we ought to do. The Pharisees weren't willing to do that. Let me get to the point. Woe 7, verses 29 through 36. And, and the, the woe here is that they persecute and kill the messengers of God, the prophets. They persecute and kill the messengers of God. Now, before we start pointing a finger at them, we can see that in ourselves. When somebody tells you something right, we attack them because it's a negative. Do I look like I'm thinner this month? You know, I've been working out. I've been doing push-ups. Uh, no, man, you... Um... <laughs> Shut up talking to me. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. 
greatest of them all. Sure enough, it's me. It's got to be me. Dear, don't you tell me the truth. And that's what we're doing. The scribes and the Pharisees said, if we had been there in the day, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. No way, man. <laughs> and Jesus says, woe, judgment, damnation to you because you are like your fathers. He says in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. <laughs> he said, go on, go on. Be just like your fathers. Do you realize that Jesus said this in chapter 16? Can, can, can we turn there a moment? I want to look at 16, 17, and 20. Those three chapters. Real quick. In chapter 16, verse 21. This is Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now he's in Jerusalem, where we're reading in chapter 23, all right? He must go to Jerusalem. Do what? Suffer many things from who? From the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. What's the result of that? Be killed. What's going to happen after that? And the third day, be raised. He's this, this last woe, he's saying, y'all the ones that kill the prophet, and I've been, I've been prophesying about you through my parables, that there's one sent by God who you're going to kill. He says that in chapter 16 to his disciples so that they'll be sure what was coming for them. In chapter 17, verse um, 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Chapter 20, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus says this to his disciples so they will understand what was going on. And now he's meeting with these individuals, looking them straight in the face and saying, Look, woe and judgment to you because you have killed the fathers and you have, you've killed the prophets. And you act like, no, we would have never done that. But in less than a week, in, from the time he's telling them, less than a week, they're going to kill him. They're going to put him to death. So woe to them because they act like they're better than the people who came before them, and they are no better, in fact, just as bad and even far worse. You can read in the Old Testament and you can see the persecution that the prophets took. But you don't have to go that far in the story from Matthew and you can see John the Baptist himself. I think 
he, he, was, he was literally like one of the Old Testament prophets, even though his story of his life is told in the New Testament. He's the one that came before Jesus and was killed before Jesus was killed. He was like the Old Testament prophets who proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. He called sin, sin. He pointed to Jesus as Savior. And as a result of that, he lost his life. Now, you will say, Herod is the one that killed him. You'd be correct. But you could look at and see how this would come about again and again. Acts chapter 6 would be 1. Verse 12 when it talks about the Jews who would kill Stephen, the first martyr. Acts chapter 7, 50, 57 to 59 completes that story. Acts chapter 14, verse 19 talk, talks about the stoning and the beating of Paul the apostle by the Jews. Over and over and over again, the, those who came in the name of the Lord were rejected, persecuted, and even killed Jesus is saying they will continue to do what their fathers have done, and so they cannot say they never do a thing like that because they have and they will. In his judgment, going back to Matthew 23 now, he says you will bear the guilt of your actions, just like those who killed the prophets in the past will bear their guilt. Last section, verse 37 through 39, is really a summary of all of this. His lament over Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's come in, he's told about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's come riding meekly on a donkey. He comes into the temple. He, he speaks. He acts. Uh, he goes out of there. He comes back. He curses the fig tree, which is a representation of Israel, the nation. And now he addresses the various leaders, the Jewish community and the nation. And he pronounces a great judgment of woe on them. Now, something about the judgment of God. You say, well, why should we read about God's judgment? Why does he even announce his judgments in the word of God? He announces, in fact, like, why do we have revelation and all those judgments are made known to us? Listen, they're given to us now so that we will heed the warning. I was raised as child number five in a family of six kids. And you see, <laughs> my older brothers would attest to this. They got a lot more whoopings than I did. But there's a reason for that. Because I was better than them? No. Because I saw all the whoopings they got and I decided I don't want to get my behind whooped like that. I'm going to do something different. Their whoopings was for me to say, look, don't go this way. <laughs> Otherwise, you, your butt going to be heated up just like that. Now, I had my share of whoopings. But I learned from their whoopings. That was a woe 
to me. The judgment that God has placed on other individuals in other generations are a woe to us. Take God seriously. He means what he says. He will act out. He will do what he's promised to do. So the woes really are an act of grace. And so in verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He calls them rightly the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. But he says this, How often I would have gathered your children together. He says, I'm begging and pleading for you to come to me even now. But he says, but you aren't willing. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's saying, Israel, I want you to learn. The world, I want you to learn through the picture, through the example of Israel. And I want you to see it. I want you to learn it. And I want you to repent and turn from your evils, from your sin, from your rejection of God. Notice what he says. You won't see me again until you say this. What is it they are to say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, let's see, where did we hear that from? Where will we have heard that from? In chapter 21, when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, there were people who took off their clothes, who laid out palm branches and said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they said. What were they saying? This wasn't arbitrary. This wasn't random. This, we, we preached at this time. This came from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. They were acknowledging that this Jesus is the king sent by God. And when the Jews later got Jesus in the temple and they said, do you know what they were saying? They said, yeah, I know. Exactly. He didn't rebuke them from saying that. In other words, instead he's rebuking for all those who refuse to say that. Hosanna means two words. Save us please. That's what it means. Save us, please. And in Psalm 118, verse 25, we have three sections. Save us, please, O Lord. In other words, the only one that can save us from our plight is the Lord God himself. 
and now he has sent his son and we're begging him to complete and to do what only God can do. We're begging. In other words, hearts that are humbled before God and asking for his deliverance. Save us, please, O Lord. And then they said this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're recognizing this one who they're shouting Hosanna to is the one sent by God in his authority, and he is indeed the Savior, the promised one, the Christ. Jesus is saying, the one way to escape the woes and the judgment that I declare is for you to acknowledge me as the Christ, the Savior, the one sent from God. Isn't it good to know with all these serious woes, at the very end, he still extends an invitation to say, those who turn to me instead of rejecting me will be welcome. You will see me again. But you won't see me again unless and until you acknowledge that I am the one sent from God and the only Savior that can deliver you. This is what Jesus is saying to us today. You can think, oh, this is 2,000 years ago. What does it mean? God is serious about his word, and we can see throughout history that he's done exactly what he said. In A.D. 70, after Christ was crucified, after he was resurrected, after he ascended into heaven, Jerusalem indeed was destroyed. The temple was torn down, and the Jews lost their nation up until almost our current time. 1946, I think it was. Some of you historians will know the exact date is when they came back after World War II, came back into their land and into their nation. And even the current events right now, they're still struggling in that place. And as a nation, they haven't turned to God. They haven't turned to Christ today. But Christ is saying to them and to all of the world, Jew and Gentile, you must acknowledge me for who I am. There's no other way around it. You must be willing to say, blessed is he who comes. Blessed is this Jesus who comes. He, in fact, is the Christ, the Savior, the only Savior that got sins to the world. That's good news. That is good news. We all can be hypocritical in our hearts, very much so. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, save me from my pitiful self. I will turn on you given a chance, but Lord, change me. Hold on to me. Keep me. Secure me in your hand. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Lord, please save. Save me now. He has the power to do that. And so we, we yield ourselves to him. We humbly Submit ourselves to God. That's what he's calling for us to do. 
Isn't it amazing that it's less than a week before he's going to be laid on the cross and he's still appealing, even in his great judgment, appealing. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the crowd. He's saying, y'all don't understand what's happening. I'm explaining it, but you're not understanding. But later on, perhaps you'll get the significance of it. And some of you will turn to me. Some of them, in fact, did do that as the disciples began to take the message out. Some in our day are doing that as God has touched our hearts and, and he's calling us to, to be committed to continue that message of the gospel to others. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about who he is. It's about submitting to him, acknowledging him, and turning to him and living that life that we cannot live in our own power. Only God can give us the strength not to live a hypocritical life. Father, we thank you for your word today. We see ourselves weak, prone to wonder. We feel it. But we see your loving, stretched out arms here and later in this book on the cross and later the risen Savior who's saying, follow me, trust in me. I am the one and only Savior. So Lord, those of us who have trusted in him re recognize that he is the one. We've come to know that by your grace. We're going to live that by your grace. We're going to be consistent and faithful to you by your grace, by your power. We desire to be that. We just want to submit ourselves and acknowledge you for who you are. We want to live consistently by the power of your Holy Spirit, day by day. We want to confess our sins when we don't live the way that we should and simply humble ourselves before you and thank you for your goodness, your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your patience, your long-suffering with us. Speak to our hearts through your word as we leave this place, as we minister, encourage one another. As we continue walking with you and trusting in you, we pray this now in Jesus' name.